I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our 2021 vision series, A Narrow View of the Whole World. It's been a weird couple of years, with incessant doom-scrolling and a relentless barrage of bad news spilling from screens on all sides. Finding your footing as a disciple of Jesus in your own corner of the world begins to seem more daunting, more far-fetched. But it's time to get back to work. This week, I heard um, an interesting description. It was someone talking about writer-director Paul Schrader, and they referred to Paul Schrader as a miserableist. I had never heard that word before. Paul Schrader, if you don't know, wrote some of Martin Scorsese's dark classics like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull before he went on to write and direct his own very somber films, like one of my favorites of 2017, which was First Reformed. Oh, yeah, a fan of First Reformed? Who, was, who said that? Oh, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, me and you, buddy. <laughs> um, so a writer that I admire was unpacking Schrader's latest film, The Card Counter, and he said that word. He said, I think the reason, this is a quote, I think the reason there is so little joy in Schrader's movies is because he is a proud miserableist. And this movie is his way of conferring his view on the world to us. That's what an artist does. And I remember as I was driving and listening to this podcast, I thought to myself, sure, why not be a miserableist? And believe it or not, I wasn't thinking about 2020 or 2021. I wasn't thinking about the plague or the way people react to it. I wasn't thinking about political hysteria or social media outrage or hordes of depressed digital doom-scrolling zombies. I was just aware of life in the world. I could be a miserableist. I'm not but I could be. (laughs) Did you know that this last Sunday, while we were in here having church, elsewhere in Vancouver, just a little ways from here, there was a standoff between a local man and police that involved uh, kidnapping, assault, attempted murder, and a man brutalizing and nearly killing his newborn daughter. Now, for the more brittle ears in the audience, I've got to tell you, I've read a lot of stories like this over the years, and much, much worse. In fact, I tend to go looking for them, not because any part of me in any way enjoys it, but precisely because I don't. It's hard to understand for some of you, I'm sure, but a a few similar personalities, Levi's one of them. I wanted to take someone down with me, Levi's one of them. (laughs) You'll understand this if you're wired similarly. I'm fascinated by the human condition. I badly want to wrap my head around evil. But this is a fool's errand, because even when you trace evil all the way back to brass tacks, when you do your best to reverse engineer the horrifying thing, you often find only cruel, pointless chaos. See, every single day, something truly horrible happens in the world, and every now and then, these things are captured by the news media, and typically on a local level. So over the years, I've read about countless atrocities, far too depraved for any horror movie that unfold in unassuming apartment buildings or trailers or in some suburb none of us will ever visit. And even so, they make little more than quiet headlines most of the time, and then they go away. But then, every now and then, something happens, and for one reason or another, it captures the attention and commands the outrage of an international public, regardless of how atrocious it is. And sometimes it makes perfect sense. You're like, yeah, I can see the world being pretty upset about this. And other times I wonder to myself, why? Does anyone in here recognize the name Walter J. Palmer? 
No one? I didn't think so. Walter J. Palmer is a dentist from Minneapolis. Now, in 2015, this dude paid 50 grand to a guide in Zimbabwe. Then he lured a protected lion named Cecil from a national park where it was being studied by a research team from Oxford. And then he proceeded to kill Cecil with a bow and arrow. And since all kinds of people were keeping up with this lion, they were studying it because it was protected and because this dentist had kicked up such a trail just to kill it, all the dirty details came to light pretty quickly, and for a brief and bizarre window in 2015, the world was outraged by the murder of Cecil the Lion. Oh man, it was a real stink. It was all over the internet. Politicians were speaking out against Walter J. Palmer, the dentist from Minneapolis. Celebrities were commenting on this incident. Mia Farrow tweeted out the dude's office address, and he started to get death threats. Justice for Cecil the world was saying. Now, I have a hot take on all this. Um, I am, as I, you know, some of you know, I've been around vegan, not for health benefits. Those, those are nice too. I have ethical and theological reasons for veganism. That's a different conversation. But I bring this up now because I feel pretty strongly about it. But when poor Cecil was arrowed down in cold blood, and when the whole world went ballistic over it, I couldn't help but think, why does anyone care. Because believe me, what happened to the poor cow in the hamburger or the chickens in the Chick-fil-A sandwich makes what happened to Cecil look gracious by comparison. Here's another one that you'll love. Every year in Yulin, China, there's a dog meat festival. Now, when Western people hear about this, they gasp and they clutch their pearls and they cry out, this must be stopped. Right after I finish this hamburger, om, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> and they say to the world, these savages don't they realize that the superior Western palate has selected cows, chickens, goats, sheep, etc. for food? Dogs are friends. Because our outrage as human beings is selective and, to be frank, often mindless. And we all do this. We're arbitrary beings, humans. And I know I'm picking on you know, the whole food issue, but believe me, I do the same stuff. And I do the same stuff on this issue. In fact, before I was vegan, I had this mild existential crisis one winter when a series of cat snuff videos were making headlines all over the world, if you remember that. And I knew I was doing it. I would ask myself, why am I freaking out over this? It's bad, but there's much, much worse, and I'm participating in it. These last couple of years have really put a floodlight on our arbitrary sense of outrage. And I think there's a few reasons for it. Here's the first one. I really believe, and I'm not alone on this, and I didn't make it up myself, I really believe that you and I are fundamentally incapable of processing, let alone addressing, every bad thing going on in the world. And we can't keep it all in our brains. It's why so few of you remember Walter J. Palmer at all. And that's a problem because with globalization and social media, the 24-hour for-profit news cycle, we know about a lot of stuff almost instantly. And in 2020, with the world crumbling and propaganda and paranoia and conspiracy, everyone was depending on a screen to explain the universe. If you were on the political left, you went to your, you know, I don't know, CNNs and MSNBCs and an echo chamber of an Instagram feed to remind you of what you already thought, and the, the right is the enemy, and that the COVID anti-maskers were the relentless black death plague that was going to end the world for sure. And if you were on the right, you had the Fox News thing to whip you into a frenzy over the hell-bent, you know, the people hell-bent on prying your precious personal freedoms from your cold, dead hands. And if you were far right, well, then, you know, you, you go to the totally reliable and not at all insane news about democratic devil cults, and you get it all from screenshots of TikTok. <laughs> totally reputable. But 
wherever you were doing your doom scrolling, wherever it was, right, left, far left, far right, whatever, it was probably really bad for you. It's not a secret. Look it up. Study and study, survey after survey, a growing mountain of research confirms that consuming news media contributes to widespread anxiety, depression, addiction, even PTSD. It hampers cognitive ability, it destroys creativity and attention spans, and it actually makes the consumer of the news less likely to care about or to take action against bad things constantly unfolding in the world. And we've watched this unfold over the last season of Life on Earth. I can't count how many times I've talked to people discouraged and deflated by events beyond their control. And sure, they have, there have always been bad things happening, many arguably worse things happening in the world. But these are the ones that are on our feeds, and our feeds told us to care about them, and everyone else said we should, so we get whipped into a frenzy, and it's too much. So why not be a miserablist? This is something else that I've said uh, often. If I weren't a Christian, I would be a nihilist. And not one of those defeated nihilists, I would be a defiant nihilist. I wouldn't be like those old people down in, you know, the bunkers of the Titanic that just cuddled up and went to sleep as the room was filling up with water. Spoilers for Titanic, by the way. Um, I'd be like those guys in the string quartet. They were like, uh, no, let's keep playing all the way down. You're going to hear this music until we're under water. You guys remember Titanic? Yeah, yes, great, great. Katie apparently watched it last night. Where's Katie? Are you in the Katie? Why did you watch it last night? She doesn't know. She left a note on this teaching that said, I was like, you guys remember Titanic? Katie wrote, I watched it last night, actually. <laughs> what are the odds? Anyway, it's great. If you haven't seen Titanic, check it out. Easily James Cameron's seventh or eighth best movie. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's got a really impressive filmography. Really, I'm not a nihilist. I'm not a miserableist. The last year and a half of Van City Church have felt in many ways like reconstruction. It's been this way for a lot of churches, if not all churches. It's felt like damage control. We were, like all churches, profoundly affected by the pandemic and by every other bizarre and or awful thing happening in the world. And I realize all of this sounds a bit like backtracking, but what I'm getting at with all of this is that life goes on. Time marches forward, and for us to go and to march with both we need, I think, a decidedly narrow view of the whole world. We care about the world, obviously. We care about ways that are practical and philosophical, but we cannot be derailed by tragedy or evil or suffering. And I've been on about this kind of stuff this whole time, but the thing is, we are ready to do stuff as a church. And though I doubt the pandemic politics conversation is going anywhere anytime soon, we have got more important things to worry about over here. And the scope of that concern might seem, in many ways, very, very small. And I think that that's what we need right now. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15 in the New Testament. Feel free to consult the table of contents if you're new to the Bible. Tonight, we are beginning our annual vision series. The premise is this. Like I said, church has been through a lot. That happens either way. Stuff changes, things shuffle. So every year we set aside time in the fall, uh, and as my mentor used to say, we circle the wagons. And I understand that metaphor, but I'm not sure why we use it. Why the frontier times? Anyway, whatever. Anyway, we take time to talk about who we are, what we're doing, why, and we do our best to make clear our vision for church in the months 
ahead at Van City. And it begins, as usual, with the Bible. John 15. Let's read beginning with verse 1. Are you guys all right? You with me? Great, thank you. John 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean, he says to his disciples, because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my apprentices or disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Skip down to verse 18. This is important. Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Turn over to chapter 16. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. All this, the vine, the branches, remain in my love, be prepared to be hated and rejected by the world. I'm telling you all this, Jesus says, so that you will not fall away. And then finally, look down at Jesus' closing remarks in John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is trademark Jesus. His reassurance is incredible, profound, powerful, but it comes on the heels of a heavy dose of reality. It's going to be bad. Get ready. You will have trouble, but I am bigger and better, and I will be with you. But yes, it's going to be bad. And we know this. Again, bad world and all. But Jesus' instruction for how to endure the world's trouble without falling away is incredible. We've been looking at it again and again for years, and here it stands again and again and again, remain in me. The word translated as remain or abide in some of your Bibles is meno in Greek, and it can be translated stay united with me. In ancient Greek, there's no italics and there's no capital letters or underlining. So to emphasize something, you repeat it. In this short teaching, Jesus says, Mino, or stay with me, ten times with his execution before him and all the trouble in the world before his disciples. Jesus tells them, listen, you have to remember this. Remain in me, remain in me, remain in me. I, Jesus says, I'm not merely a set of teachings or a belief. I am not an ethic only. I am a person. I am your teacher, your friend, your master. Stay with me. Stay united with me. Remain in me. And for centuries, writers and thinkers in the spiritual formation tradition have argued that here lies the secret. Live all of life in 
and out of the presence of Jesus. Cultivate a moment-by-moment, day-by-day connectedness to the Spirit of God within you, and in doing so, access the presence of Jesus Himself. Whatever is happening in your life or your day or the world around you, remain in Him. And when we do this, very slowly, over a lifetime, we become the person God wants us to be. We operate out of contentment rather than anxiety, out of wisdom rather than foolishness, out of joy rather than anger, out of hope rather than despair. The presence of Jesus transforms us into the image of Jesus. And that is why our church has always so valued what we call the practices or spiritual disciplines. It's not about the discipline itself. It's about being with Jesus. Richard Foster said it well, discipline brings freedom. The purpose of meditation is to enable us to hear God more clearly. To pray is to change. All who have walked with God have viewed prayer as the main business of their lives. Prayer was no little habit tacked on to the periphery of their lives. It was their lives. It was the most serious work of their productive years. The most difficult problem is not finding time, but convincing myself that this is important enough to set aside the time. Disciplines are not the answer. They only lead us to the answer. If worship does not propel us into greater obedience, it has not been worship. To stand before the Holy One of eternity is to change. For the past several years, Van City Church has been on a journey to figure out together how we change through the presence of God and to put that into practice. And every year, come Vision Series time in the fall, this is the drum we're beating, and obviously this year is no different, except, except this last year and some change has given us a lot to think about. Most of it not so good. Now, you guys end up hearing a lot about me week in and week out during these times because, well, it's me up here talking, and my experience is the only one I have to work with. My apologies. So, you know, it's, oh, here he goes with the vegan stuff again, or whatever. You guys are sick of hearing about, oh, trash corn. He eats popcorn out of the trash. Or, He's probably about to bring up Hootie and the Blowfish. Did you know? <laughs> Hootie and the Blowfish sold more than 10 million copies of that one record. And then that was it, Levi. Everybody forgot about him after that. But you can contribute to their ever-growing mountain of wealth by going and listening to Cracked Rear View tomorrow on your streaming server. I have no affiliation with Hootie and the Blowfish. They're not giving me anything for this. But I'd love, I'd love, you know, to be connected in some way. <laughs> Darius, give me a call. But I don't mind telling you, this weird passage of time that began around March of 2020, to be frank, has not been bad for me personally. Sure, I've been inconvenienced like everyone else, but my go of it personally has been mercifully without major tragedy. Now, I may not always be the most balanced person. In fact, I'm not always the most balanced person. But for one reason or another, the siren song of the extremes during this whole thing have fallen on deaf ears over here. I'm happy to wear a mask. I'm happy to follow all the rules, whatever. And I'm also, for better or for worse, I've never experienced any anxiety whatsoever about getting sick or anything like that. I got vaccinated, whatever. But to date, I have yet to sit around feeling angry or bent out of shape about people who aren't vaccinated. Again, whatever. And I started to ask myself at some point, What's up with all this middle-of-the-road stuff, Josh? Is it maturity? That would be a new one. 
is it wisdom? That's, you know, I sincerely doubt it. And as best as I can tell, I've narrowed it down to a couple of prospects. One of them being that I've sort of always thought of life in the world as a mixed experience. Yes, there's heinous stuff going on, and no, it's nothing to take lightly, but the whole world has always been like that. We're just in a unique spell where the same kind of ugliness is ever before us all. And the other thing occurred to me when I remembered a conversation with another pastor friend of mine from a few years ago. See, this pastor friend of mine had a plan and a vision for his church, and what they would get into the year it was really thoughtful, really, I mean, years in the making, no exaggeration. But little by little, he realized as they were ramping up to this thing that they wanted to do, people were coming to him and to other leaders in the church with questions about sexuality. No surprise there, it's a hot button issue. But what was surprising to this friend of mine was that many, many people in his church, he discovered, either didn't know or did know and rejected Jesus' teaching on sexuality and gender in favor of a more progressive, friendly ideology. And it was confusing and discouraging to the people around them that so many people in the church were ready to say that Jesus was wrong. And before he knew it, there was this haze in his church, and it had to be addressed. So he threw out his vision and plan, and they spent a lot of time and work on teaching through what the Bible has to say about sexuality and gender. Some of the best teachings I've heard on the topic. If you want to hear it, go to Google Bridgetown Church, God and Sexuality. Be my guest. Go nuts. So I was having lunch with my friend sitting in his house, and I asked if he was happy how the series turned out, because I impressed as I was. But my friend seemed dis discouraged. He sighed, and he said, you know, I had plans for this year, and stopping everything to take a detour through very basic doct doctrine on which there has been unanimous agreement in all of the Christian tradition for centuries wasn't really part of that plan. It felt to him a bit like throwing out grad school curriculum to remind college students how to do basic elementary math. And I've thought about that conversation a lot since March 2020 because all churches, whether they liked it or not, had to detour. And the detour for almost all of us, as far as I can tell in my own narrow perspective and talking to different pastors, has been kind of ugly. Ours certainly has. We have never been a church that prioritized or emphasized an online presence at all by design. So going digital for us, even for that brief window, was uh, quite frankly soul draining. Is that a, a accurate, Cam? Soul draining to do digital church? He's nodding emphatically. Yes, it was no fun. And during that lockdown, during our forced digital detour, I got, this may surprise you, uncharacteristically optimistic. Never again! Again, I could be a miserablist. I could be a nihilist. I'm neither, mind you, but that to say, I tend toward pessimism as a personality trait. But I remember during that time walking around my neighborhood with my family during that whole early lockdown in 2020, and I would see people from our church, and it was so refreshing to see them. It filled me up with so much love to see these people that I you know, kind of took for granted seeing week in and week out. And I remember I actually thought, man, when we can meet again, People will have been given such a new perspective on how crucial and how deeply necessary things like community and family and church really are. And then I spent a year learning that the opposite was true. and We had to start over and further back than before it all went to pot. And I'm not a sociologist or a clinical psychologist, but a lot of people much smarter than me argue that the pandemic era and everything in it have lured many of us into obsessing over what was already too wide a view over the whole world, constantly fretting over things we can't possibly change, getting angry or scared or bent out of shape about things we shouldn't even bother with or even know about. And I've never been one to hide away from culture or to encourage anyone else to be afraid of the world. But in all of this, I want 
to learn what it means to abide in Jesus. I want to do what he's asked me to do in my little corner of the world, with my family, my community, my church. I want to steward my vocation, my season of life. I want to take responsibility for the things entrusted to me by God, and I want the wisdom and maturity to let everything else go. I want to love and care for the world in a way that is wise and mature and discerning and self-sacrificial. I don't want to be insular, self-absorbed, all about me. I want to deeply care about the people in my life and the people over whom God has given me any level of responsibility in keeping with God's call over my life. I want a decidedly narrow view of the world. Look, we've dedicated a lot of time to reminding everyone why we're here and wanting to make the best out of a rough season. If I had to summarize the last, you know, two years of teaching at Vancity Church, that's kind of it. You should really care about church, and you should really be here. We need one another. It's important. We're trying to follow Jesus. But now we're ready to get back to work. And I don't regret that time or those talks. I don't think we weren't focused on Jesus then. We were. But we were at the mercy of our circumstances. We've got a huge percentage of people in Van City communities who don't even come to the Sunday gathering. We've, got, we've had people swept up in the polarizing terror world of pandemic hysteria. And like all churches, some people got upset about thinking we had too many rules or not enough rules or whatever it might be. And we didn't want to pretend like these things weren't happening to just keep trucking along with the elephants well in the room. We'll never turn into a fallout shelter to hide from the world, and wherever you're at in your journey with Jesus, you will always be welcome here. This is a safe place to figure things out amongst other people doing likewise. People who have been following Jesus for decades and people who still don't even know what they think about Jesus, all in the same room together. It's a beautiful thing. It always has been. And we want to learn how to follow Jesus together. We don't want to host an event or cater to a political preference, or coddle anyone's outrage. We want to follow Jesus. And believe me, that will upset, upset people enough. I doubt that we could ever be the weekly inspirational pep talk megachurch, putting butts in seats and patting everyone on the head. If we wanted to do that, I'm sure the first order of business would be to get rid of me. Um, I thought about it this week. I was like trying to imagine the kind of notes that I would get from a suburban megachurch, Josh, stop reminding everyone they're going to die one day. And then I would say, but they are. And then I would go full millennial. I'd be like, this environment is oppressive and toxic. And I would quit. (laughs) My point is, we, as a family, as a church, we want to be where God wants us to be, doing what God wants us to do, not for the sake of blind obedience, but for the sake of freedom so we can experience what Jesus called life and life to the fullest. Think about Jesus. Jesus, who was God, but also man, Jesus took responsibility for his vocation, his calling, his time and place. He repeatedly rejected pressure to exert himself into affairs beyond his own realm of responsibility, which is incredible. But the thing that's even more incredible to me is how Jesus chose to spend his time. Look at this. This is the beginnings of a story we've covered in detail while studying Matthew. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus, at a specific time and place in his life, upon the Spirit's leading, decides to go into the desert for 40 days of both silence and solitude and fasting. 
This is during his like few short years of ministry. He wants to spend a whole month and change out in the desert. He withdrew from the world in a way. That is pretty Jesus-level stuff. And we know the Spirit led him, but we also know that Jesus was autonomous. He decided to follow the Spirit's leading. Why this time? Why these things? The story paints a very purposeful picture, not random, not spontaneous at all. But he didn't, that we know of, do the whole 40 days of fasting thing a ton. Other things he did all the time. Remember this? The news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. It wasn't just a unique one-off 40 days of fasting stuff. Jesus often practiced silence and solitude, and he prayed all the time, alone or in the company of other people. And that's not all. Jesus practiced community, if you read the stories. He shared the gospel all the time. He studied the scriptures. He attended synagogue, and he participated while he was there. You see, when we read the biographies of Jesus' life, they often play to the modern sensibility like a series of detached scenes. Then he did this thing, then he did that thing. And we can forget that Jesus didn't just wander haphazardly from one unplanned event to another as if life just sort of happened to Jesus. He knew what he was doing. And when chaos upended Jesus' plans, and it does in the story, and his life rhythms and his disciplines got kind of thrown out of whack, he adapted without compromising his discipline or faithfulness. He chose when to pray, when to study, when to practice silence and solitude or fasting or gratitude. He made space for community, to do his work, to rest. And when things beyond his control messed with the plan, he adapted without giving up, without compromising the code by which he lived. He made deliberate decisions that enabled him to live simply, to prioritize the relationships that were important to him, to be alone, and to be with other people. And though neither he nor the authors of the New Testament named it this specifically, it seems abundantly clear that Jesus had what we now call a rule of life. Just before the pandemic grinded things to a halt, that is what we were learning together as a family. It's a concept popularized by St. Benedict in the 4th century. It might be even older than that. Benedict wrote out a very pragmatic guide to spiritual rhythms for each day, week, month, and year in his monastery, and he called it a rule for life. If you're like me, not so much a fan of the rules, per se. It's actually derived from the Latin regula, where we get regulation. So to explain it, think of Jesus' metaphor of the vine and the trellis. For a vine to grow well, it needs support of some kind, apparently, an infrastructure to guide and nurture it as it grows up and out. Without a trellis, the vine can grow, but the growth is kind of chaotic and more vulnerable, and it will fall short of its potential. Thus, a trellis is kind of like a rule of life. Andy Crouch defines it as a set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. A rule of life is about taking responsibility with our calendar and our time in order to do the things that we actually want to do. There are things that we want to do on a superficial level, like eat, sleep, and be entertained. And then there are things that we want to do on a more personal level. We want to be productive or we want to realize some kind of dream. We want to be healthy, whatever it is. And then there are things that we actually want to do at a deep soul level, like know and be known by God, or experience true freedom, or walk in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The first tier, to eat and sleep, that comes pretty easy. The second one is a bit more challenging, recognizing a dream, following your calling, that kind of thing. And the third, for many of us, to be known by God and walk in the Spirit, it seems, at, at, at least at times, elusive, if not far-fetched. Think about it this way. It sounds hyper-mystic or philosophical, 
But really, everyone already understands this. For each of us, there are layers of genuine desire that rule the major and minor parts of our lives. The New Testament differentiates between kinds of desires, desires by saying some belong to the Spirit and some belong to the flesh. It may seem as if, based on the way that we talk and behave, the things that we do, that we don't deeply desire the way of Jesus, but if we follow Him and we have the Spirit of God in us, we do. And a rule of life can help us live in alignment with our deepest and thus truest desires. It's actually pretty simple. The ordinary rhythm of life for most of us is set up to keep us mired in the stagnation of superficial desire or the flesh because we keep a smartphone in our pocket or we can access a streaming service with the push of a button or we orbit certain circles of gossip or news media or we pass a half dozen opportunities to lust and objectify other people on a given day. So unless we deliberately rewire the spiritual rhythm of our lives, we will likely soldier on alongside the status quo. A rule of life can be the way we accomplish that rewiring and in doing so, finally get some peace. Peace, that is, the way God means it, what the Hebrew, Hebrew authors of the Bible call shalom, a sense of contentment, of closeness with God, that we know what is right and good, even in a broken and disheveled world. Now, here again, I know some of you, like me, probably don't take kindly to rules and regulations, but please hear me when I say this. You already have a rule of life, all of you. It's likely unwritten, maybe even subconscious at times, but there is a rhythm and routine to your life, the way you get up, the way you work, when you sleep, what you do before you sleep, and on which days, and how you spend your money, the kinds of things you prioritize, projects, family, phone, friends. All of us have a rule of life already. And as you'll see, the more we get into this, it's not like every item on your rule must be profoundly spiritual sounding, but ask yourself this. When you scan your brain, and you take a passing inventory of your life rhythms as they are now, are they aligned with the deepest desires of your heart for your life and your family and your future and for the kingdom of God or not? For the next few weeks, we want to help develop a rule of life as individuals, communities, and as a church. And hear me, the idea is not to give you more work, another thing to do. It's not to confine you or restrict you. This is what we would do to find more freedom. Margaret Gunther, wife, mother, and Anglican priest says it well. She said, a good rule can set us free to be our true and best selves. It is a working document, a kind of spiritual budget, not carved in stone, but subject to regular review and revision. It should support us, but never constrict us. The idea is to look at your own personality, your, your season of life, the person that Jesus has asked you to be, and if you're still figuring out, that's fine, this can help, and you establish for yourself adaptable rhythms that will enable and empower you to live and thrive as a disciple of Jesus. Now, I've been at this whole following Jesus thing for the better part of my life now, and like all of you, there have been ups and downs and seasons of intimacy and fruitfulness and seasons of detachment and drought. But the thing is, I'm not new to spiritual disciplines. Some of them, like the basics, you know, getting up early to pray and read the Bible, I've been practicing with various degrees of faithfulness and lapses in faithfulness for many, many years. I've fasted, I've done silence and solitude and scripture memorization and contemplative prayer, and I've been in community for years and years and years now. But what I found happening is that the disciplines that come naturally 
tend to implement with some degree of ease because I like doing them. But the ones that are tricky, even if they're really good, I kind of learn them, work on them, then excuse them to the background until something reminds me of their benefit. And that's not all bad because you can't do everything all the time. But I found myself realizing from time to time that I was likely inhibiting my own growth by not creating practical ways to practice and implement things like generosity or rest or fasting or whatever it might be. Because again, the spiritual disciplines are all a means to an end. They are not the point in and of themselves. God is the point. Learning to live connected to Him, hearing Him, walking with Him, becoming who He has made you to be. And what I realized is that I already had a rule of life. I tend to sleep in the same basic time frame. frame. My mornings take the same basic shape, give or take. My work days and work habits, the way I approach projects, the time I spend with Abby and the kids and my friends. And I realized that creating a new rule of life didn't mean cramming all kinds of new and extra things into what already feels at times to be too much. A rule of life didn't mean a miraculous fast track to sanctification by any means. It wasn't a new trick to somehow help me do the things I wasn't doing before. It was a way of organizing what was already there, clearing out some of the clutter, and giving myself the opportunity to live into new rhythms for more freedom. Letting the stuff of no value go and replacing it with what I know will do me good. So we're going to spend the next few weeks, if you're up for it, revisiting the work that we began in 2019, good Lord, developing a rule of life. And I'll take you guys through the major building blocks, share some of my own rule along the way, some of the changes that I've made in that time. We'll kind of revisit some of those ideas through a fresh lens, struggles that we've all had. And each week, you'll meet in your communities, talk through it, practice it, figure it out, help one another put these things into practice. The first practice is a simple one, and it's up at vancity.church slash vision series. When you meet in your communities this week, the idea will be to talk through the basic categories of rule of life, take a long look at your life rhythm as it is, how it populates those categories just as it is now. If you're not yet in an advanced city community, feel free to meet with a friend or two and just give it a shot. This week, the idea is without judgment or pressure, sit down and think about what you're already doing and what you're not doing and what you'd like to be doing. It seems to me that spiritual disciplines without a rule of life is a bit like learning the piano with no piano lessons. Can one learn the piano simply by toying with it when the mood hits, coming and going, learning something here and there? Probably, yeah. But chances are it could be clumsy or inefficient, and the bigger chance is that you probably won't master the piano without some regimented guide for practice. But what if someone implemented lessons into the rhythm and calendar of their lives? What if they said, on these days of the week, I will spend this many hours with a teacher. I will study alone on these nights at these times, and I will structure my time to accommodate these things. You probably see where I'm going with this. A rule of life is an attempt to arrange our days and years so that we actually experience a deep sense of life with God. To end, let me read over you from the prologue to St. Benedict's Rule. This is all the way back from the 6th century. In drawing up its regulations, we hope to set down nothing harsh, nothing burdensome. The good of all concerned, however, may prompt us to a little strictness in order to amend faults and to safeguard love. Do not be daunted immediately by fear and run away from the road that leads to salvation. It is bound to be narrow at the outset. But as we, prog as we progress in this way of life and in faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments, our hearts overflowing with the inexpressible delight of love. That sounds 
pretty good to me. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.